Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is October the 21st, lunchtime on the West Coast. And once again, you can't make the news up as I speak. Uh, The headlines are increasingly bizarre. Rudy Giuliani apparently got caught red-handed with Borat's daughter with his hands down his trousers, some symbolic summary of of the the, the current state of America. Um, One person, I think, who will be chuckling, uh, or at least whose ashes will be chuckling as they lie still in Brooklyn, is uh, the great uh, investigative journalist uh, Wayne Barrett. Rudy Giuliani famously said, fucking Wayne Barrett, which was one of the the very few Rudy, true words probably Giuliani has ever spoken. Uh, We're very, very lucky that uh, my guest on the show today, Eileen Markey, has edited a new new selection of of, of Barrett's important journalistic work. It's called Without Compromise, uh, the brave journalism that first exposed, uh, and, and I use that word carefully given the news today, Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and the American epidemic of corruption. Uh, Eileen uh, Markey was a student of uh, of Barrett and now is one of his uh, great acolytes uh, after his death. He died, I think, a day before uh, Trump was... um, Trump was uh, appointed uh, or when he was... inaugurated, I'm not sure if that's the right word, crowned or whatever other word, the muckraker who tormented Trump. Uh, Eileen, welcome uh, to the show from your home in the Bronx. Uh, to begin, tell me a little bit about this guy, Wayne Barrett. Who, who was he? So Wayne Barrett was an investigative journalist. He wrote for The Village Voice for most of his career, almost the entirety of his career from the late 70s until 2011. Um, and his beat was New York City grime. His, his beat was New York City and New York State corruption, um, political corruption, and how it, it you know, fed city business and city business fed upon it. Um, and, and so as this local, uh, he covered, you know, some pretty big stories that only got bigger with time. Um, so he covered Donald Trump as a local crook, you know, as a local grifter um, way back. Back in the 1970s, he covered Leone as, you know, a crusading prosecutor and then eventually a mayor. Um, and then someone he, Wayne eventually referred to Rudy Giuliani as used 9-11 memorabilia salesman Rudy Giuliani. Um, what do you think, uh, what do you think you'd think of this later story? Would he be surprised, amused, or just disgusted? I think part of him would be very sad. When he first met Rudy Giuliani, he respected him that Giuliani was a crusading prosecutor who was putting away the mob, um, who was cleaning up the political clubhouse that dominated all of New York City politics, really 
to the detriment of the delivery of democracy. And Giuliani was this young, ambitious prosecutor who was getting rid of the bad guys. And so in the very beginning, Barrett and Rudy were very much on the same side. They wanted to clean up political corruption. Um, as Rudy grew older and more powerful, he became ever smaller. Um, and I think Wayne would actually feel a, some, some sadness to see a person he once respected reduced over and over again because of his poor choices, reduced over and over again to a, a small man. Eileen, we've had a, a number of excellent mud, mud-raking journalists on the show recently. Uh, following in, in in Barrett's footsteps, at least in theory. Uh, two people come to mind, Tom Burgess um, and Catherine Belton, who wrote books about uh, the, the dirty money circulating and ruining the world and tying it with Trump. It seems as if if there was a principle to Barrett's journalism, it's following the money. Is that fair? Yeah, it's following the money. It's following the documents. It's getting getting the original citation, right? Getting the original document. Uh, he famously trained all of these interns. He always worked with two or three or five interns, uh, you know, running errands, um, running running the nitty gritty work. Um, it, it was a tre tremendous education in journalism for all of us. Um, he would be working on this story, and we'd be like the little mice who'd go out and get the lawsuit and find the records, um, find the canceled checks, look at the political contributions. Um, and so he did a tremendous amount of following the money and following the favors um, and, and, and putting pieces of fact together, right? Here's a donation over here to this person. Here's, um, you know, here's a zoning variance offered over here. Here's a tax abatement um, rewarded over there. Um, really deep, meticulous, careful, exhaustive reporting. Really different than a lot of what most journalists are able to do today. He wrote once a week. Uh, he never wrote more than once a week, which, and most of his stories probably had about a month lead time. You know, there's kind of a cycle of what was getting published and what he was digging on. Um, so it was all about finding the documents. Every fact is out there. Um, and, you know, most of his career was done pre, pre-internet. Um, of course, once everything so much was available online, it made his sort of investigative work easier. But he still relied on on finding the original sources for things, on getting the physical copy in his hand, and very much on doing interviews with people and, and you know, knocking on every door. One of the essays in the book is, that's the title of it, to knock on every single door. Um, not that you can get people by tweeting at them, but that you show up at their house at dinner time and they're more likely to talk to you. Um, even people who who it's not good news if Wayne Barrett shows up on your door. Um, but amazingly, people would speak um, and really kind of confess, it seems. Um, and yeah, maybe it's no, no no coincidence that he 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 was a Catholic, or at least that was his background. Eileen, tell me a little bit more about the book. In a sense, I know you're just not just, but you're the editor of the book. In a sense, it was a, a, a Barrettesque enterprise in terms of uh, tracking down the data, finding the material. Is that fair? Yeah, it was it was great fun. Um, so right, so working for him, we all ended up with this this love of documents um, and loving getting lost in an archive and in a big box of paper. Um, so so that's what I had to do to put this book together. Um, we knew that we wanted to have you know Barrett's wife, his son, a, a committee of other people who've been doing different types of work to keep Wayne's memory alive. Realized this book would be a good project, and then you know I spent some time trying to talk to people. Well, what what articles really need to be in there? 
We knew the Trump articles needed to be in there. We knew, knew that there needed to be a good amount of stuff on Rudy. Um, that then there also had to be a, a collection of things from the 1980s when Barrett uh, was was first kind of hitting a stride. Municipal corruption scandals in the 80s. People might remember that movie City Hall. It's really based on one of Barrett's first on Barrett's first book that he co-authored. Um, but so anyway, nothing from the Village Voice that was published before 1994 was online. Um, since then, once Trump was in presidency, the, the Voice website kind of put up some old articles. But anyway, I had to go find these articles and the Voice is not digitized before 94. Um, and tell me a little bit about the um, the, uh, the the track to uh, to look at his uh, his his data, his 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 source of um, his source of research. I know that you looked at a lot of cards to do this book. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. And so the essay I write at the beginning of the book is talking about tracking Wayne. Right, he taught us to dig and to know that that the facts are out there. It's it's not subjective. That there's there's evidence and there's reality, and that you just need to dig hard enough to get to it. And so I took that as kind of part of the mission of figuring out who is he and and what drove him. Um, and so that began by going to the offices of the Village Voice, which still exists. It ceased publication several years ago, um, but there is an office where the back history of the Voice is held. Uh, and there's a card catalog, right? I don't know when the last time I touched a card catalog was, but there's a card catalog. You pull out a drawer, you go to Barrett, and there's, you know, three feet of the history of municipal corruption in New York City. There's three feet that tell the sorry, sordid stories of how New York City in the post-fiscal crisis city remade itself as a grab bag for the wealthy. Uh, and this was all their chapter and verse, index card after index card. So I started looking at those, figured out, you know, a, a list of about 300 articles. Right. And you have this wonderful quote. Uh, you said about these boxes, the terrible truth held in those boxes in Texas is this. Uh, Donald Trump has a thousand fathers, most of them respectable people, most of them it being New York Democrats, Hugh Carey and Richard Ravitz, Mario Cuomo and Andrew, Ed Koch, the City Planning Commission and the Department of Taxation. Of course, Roy Cohn and Roger Stone. Uh, I really want you to talk about what, um, what Barrett warned us about trump uh uh as um as as michael cruz uh suggested in uh, i think it was in uh, uh 2017 uh he, barrett tormented trump more than anybody yeah so what did he get about trump that still we need to remind people he got then in the late winter of 1979 when he published those articles that for donald trump every single relationship is transactional that there's no there there there's no belief there's no uh there's no ideology there's every single thing is transactional um that 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 is all he is and so barrett wrote this series of articles that that ran in the late winter of 1979 and they talked about donald court documented racism right that he'd already uh been the subject of federal federal lawsuit because of his racist uh, housing policies. It documented chapter and verse really sort of exhaustively um, the favors and, and, and shady connections he used to get the, the line Barrett uses is to turn um, 
public benefit to private gain, right? He took tax money from the public, tax things he wouldn't have to pay from the public, uh, turned it into private gain at our at our expense. And that was all clear then. In the 70s and in the 80s, Trump, and you know, and then again when he like reemerged in The Apprentice, so he's covered as glitz and personality and style, and then maybe kind of as a joke. Um, Barrett took him seriously and took him seriously as a symptom of a culture that has its values screwed up. Um, at the the closing of those those articles that Barrett wrote in '79, they close with this phrase, you know, this sentence that we used as the, I used as the epitaph of the book: "The actors are pretty small and venial; their ideas are small, never transcending profit. In it, however, are the men elected to lead us and those who buy them. In it, unhappily, are the processes and decisions that shape shape our city and our lives." Um, Barrett had no idea that Donald Trump was going to become president or going to run for president. He thought he was going to continue to be a person who turned the commonweal of New York City into his private wealth. Um, and he thought that was bad. He thought that was this was a mendacious character that New York City's power brokers were doing business with. Um, the horror is that he was so enabled, that Donald Trump was so enabled in those years in New York City and so legitimized that he was in a position to come back and come back and come back and eventually be able to run for president. If Donald Trump had never been given loans um, by the great fathers of the city who rescued us from the fiscal crisis, he would have just been a developer in Queens with a federal discrimination lawsuit against him. He wouldn't have been Donald Trump of Manhattan. Uh, and therefore, and you know, all of his um, business troubles and foreclosures that he, he just would have failed, right? He wouldn't have been this 1980s glitzy character, joke or glamour, whatever it was, it, he would have just been a guy who built housing in Queens. Um, but because he was enabled and enabled over and over again by the policies of New York City and New York State, he was able to gain the kind of foothold that allowed him eventually to, to bring us to this state, to bring us to this state where, where we're, good Lord, that's such a crazy preposition. It's uh, it, it reminds me, of course, of the cliche: all politics is local. Maybe all journalism should be local too. What What do you think he'd think of um, the work of people like Belton and Burgess, who are making these suggestions of complex fin financial dealings between the 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 the, the Trump business empire? and the Russians, and particularly Putin and the KGB. Do you think yeah. he would take that seriously, or would he argue that really all politics and all, all, all investigations should be local and it's really a New York affair? No, it's that it begins in New York, and if you have the documents and you have the facts dead to rights, then that's good journalism, right? If you're, if you're able to prove what you're alleging, then that's real journalism, and that's what he valued, and that's what he taught, and that's what he built his life around. You know, he always said that the journalism, our job is not um, dissertation, but discovery, that what we as reporters are supposed to be doing is uncovering new facts for our readers, not um, chin scratching, right? Not navel gazing. Um, so he was always really supportive of other reporters who took on his work or took on other work uh, and very much believed that, yeah, there are all sorts of crazy things are believable if you have the facts to back them up. It's the theories that are... Um, you know, that are harmful to journalism. If, if we can prove it, then sure. And, um, you know, any corruption story is a local story wherever it started. Right. The, the point I was trying to make is that 
the reason he was able to cover Trump and the reason he was able to cover Rudy is because he was a local reporter. And one of the things that's, I think, made the field of investigative journalism a little bit poorer in recent years, there's tremendous and important work being done. But one thing that's made it more difficult is that um, that fewer people are working out of a local base, right? They're, they're working big project to big project, but not week in and week out. Um, and so frankly, there's a lot of things we're missing. It's right, and I, I think that is a really important uh, lesson to take out of uh, not only of your book, but of Wayne Barrett's remarkable life. Um, as you note, there has or there is currently a crisis of American journalism, of local journalism. As the New York Times reports recently or late last year, one in five American papers has closed. And the result, they say, is that our community does not know itself. I guess what Barrett did at the Village Voice was allow New Yorkers to know itself. Uh, you have, um, again, you've written some, some important stuff on this. You say Barrett could document these crimes of people like Trump, and particularly Trump, because he was securely employed. He was union represented at a publication that each week fell with a thump on the mayor's doorstep. And, and I think what you argue here is really important. The relationship between real journalism and healthy democracy is fairly straightforward. As America and New York's news industries are trophied, poisoned by the same caprice that looted the city, readers distracted into digital entertainments that make oxygen for manipulation and propaganda, we become the kind of country that could elect Donald Trump. Not only that, but we become the kind of country that allows clowns and charlatans like Giuliani to have so much power. Is your argument then, and would Barrett's argument be that the only way to rebuild American democracy, obviously, obviously we need to, to, to vote Trump out of office next in the next couple of weeks, but to rebuild local news, is that really essential? I think that's incredibly essential, yeah. And at this point, we really need to retrain American readers and news news watchers, news listeners. Um, this is a huge project, but it's I think it's a really essential one. We're not going to get back to a position where we can be making rational arguments and rational choices about the policies that we want to be, you know, shaping the future of the nation if we have some huge portions of the country believing utter nonsense. Right? Yeah, I mean, the QAnon stuff um, is also very much in the news. There was a piece this morning about how, I don't know, 40 or 50% of people now believe a lot of the, the, the QAnon fairy tales, children's stories. Do you think that there is a, a, a very close relationship between the crisis of local news and the rise of QAnon? I, you know, I haven't spent enough time like thinking about or paying attention to QAnon, right? Life is short. There's only so many things I want to. I mean, what would uh, okay? Well, what 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 would Wayne Barrett think of QAnon? Yeah, he would think that it's it's madness what people are willing to believe, and he was always really really clear that racial resentment occupies a tremendous portion of the American psychology, um, and you know, xenophobia, anti-Semitism bald anti-black racism is a defining characteristic um, of, of a lot of a lot of people that this is a huge force. Um, he spoke about racism, he wrote about racism in ways that most white people did not in those years. Um, it, he uses language that now you see a lot of, of white people using, but 
in the, you know, in the 1990s, Barrett would say this is a racist budget. Most people didn't say that. Most white journalists didn't say that about Giuliani's budgets, but Barrett did. So I think in thinking about the conspiracy theories and the racism and the, and the sort of madness of plenty of the electorate, he would call that a race game, plain and simple. Um, and I don't know, he wasn't an introspective guy. And I certainly don't like to imagine what people would think. He didn't do any imagining. If he had a diary, I would have read it and cited it. But um, but the decline of local news, the decline of robust, serious daily local news has everything to do with how we got into this predicament that we elected Donald Trump. Um, and I don't think we should feel secure in any way that we're out of the woods yet. Um, mildly, I think uh, I really want to thank you, Eileen, for putting this book together. I think it's essential reading, especially for aspiring journalists, for anyone who wants to try to rebuild or resurrect local news. This the, the, this book you've put together is a really important document to a man who who was indeed without compromise committed to tracking down the truth and offending people like Trump and Giuliani. Uh, the book is out now. Everyone should buy it and read it. In addition to that book, uh, Eileen, I know you're stuck in the Bronx, if that's the right way of putting it, in these strange times of COVID. Uh, what else should people be reading in, in late October 2020? Well, you're never stuck in the Bronx. You're blessed and lucky if you're lucky enough to be grounded in the Bronx. Yeah. But, well, I'm in Berkeley, and I wouldn't mind being in the Bronx, although I'm sure it's warmer here than it is there. Stuck at home. Mask of the Red Death is what comes to mind, to be honest with you. Short stories of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, we'll, we'll continue all reading high quality journalism and, and there's tremendous books and nonfiction out and about um, quick things about this election, things that can help us more deeply understand this strange country, but um, there's a lot to learn from fiction. So Mask of the Red Death, Edgar Allan Poe, that's what I'll be reading. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.